Good morning. It's good to be back with you again. It's interesting, in my drive out to Shabana, um, I pass Big Rock Creek, both the east and west branches between Big Rock and Hinkley coming in this direction. This morning, it was quite swollen with all of the rain. And the east branch is a little bit harder to see because you, it's just as you come out of, out of Big Rock and it comes out of the trees there. And so you don't see it until right before. And the west branch, on the other hand, um, where it lies just north of Route 30, kind of meanders through a pasture back and forth. And if you put the satellite view on Google Images, you can even see some cows there um, that were caught when the satellite went across. And just this little section north of, uh, of the West Branch, north of Route 30, basically between County Line Road on the west and Shaw Road on the east, would be about a third shorter if it just went straight, right? And, and then if you think about it even more, um, the point where it comes the most south next to Route 30, if it would just cross there and then go on south at, at a southeasterly direction, it would cut off at least half of that length because there's this big loop that heads back north and then south again. Creeks, rivers rarely take straight lines. And... This is the thing about life. It rarely takes a straight line either, right? It doesn't go in the direction that we think it ought to. It doesn't follow our plans. It might head in that direction eventually, but it sure seems to take its sweet time getting there. And Life, just like those creeks, just like those rivers, constantly moves on. Last week, Paul was in Corinth, and he stayed there for 18 months. And now we're going to see how life moves on. And, you know, life just does this continuing thing. It doesn't stop, just like that creek, whether we want it to or not. Just over a week ago... My grandfather died. He was almost 101. On Friday morning, we had the funeral. And on Saturday morning, most of my family had to go back to Colorado. All but my aunt this morning. Life moves on. We can slow it down, or try. We can stop for a moment to impress pause, but life goes on. The world keeps turning, and we have to keep on doing it too. And just like that creek, it doesn't take a straight line. You know, when, even if we're intentional about our lives, and a lot of times we're not, but even if we're intentional about it, about the things we want to accomplish, we end up taking strange bends and looping back and heading north before turning south again. And if it's a creek, and it runs into a change in elevation, guess what? It doesn't go uphill. Changes in soil consistency or rocks or trees, all of those things impact the way that a creek runs. And as people, we run into other people. 
or financial situations or education or employment or the lack thereof and health issues and a host of other things that turn us in small ways or in large ways. And so did Paul. And we're going to see a little bit of that today. So let's take a look at a couple of what might be considered twists in Paul's life. Today we are in Acts 18, verses 18 to 28. And this is just after we are told that about the, the near riot in, in Corinth. Dr. Luke tells us, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the believers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at, uh, at Sincre because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he sailed from, from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor, and he taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila had heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to them the way of God him more the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, he, the believers encouraged him and wrote the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant Paul for the life that he lived even though it didn't go according to his plan. We thank you for the others that came along the way to help and to show your truth and your love to a world that needed it. I thank you so much for all that you continue to do for us and that you continue to show yourself faithful to us even when we are not. And I pray this morning that we would see you more clearly above all. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I have to apologize. I didn't get an outline turned in quite on time for Missy this week um, because of wakes and funerals and things. And so um, bear with me. Uh, Phil did get it into the PowerPoint this morning. Um, so you will have it there. Um, before I get too far into this, can I tell you a little bit of a secret about preaching through a narrative book like Acts? It's really tricky. Um, I don't, I'm not saying that to complain or to, to whine about how difficult it is. I love doing this. It's just that narrative is a weird thing. 
right? It tells the story that happened, not the story that should have happened or the story that we wanted to happen. It's not like a list of instructions that we get. It's descriptive more than it is prescriptive. And when you deal with narrative like that, you don't get five points and, and what you're supposed to get out of that story. Um, you, you often don't get a, a clear sense of what's going on. I mean, sometimes we can say, okay, based on what I read here, it's really easy to understand what I should or shouldn't do. But sometimes you look at it and you go, what am I supposed to do with that? It's interesting that it happened, but I mean, think about this passage today. Take a wide-angle lens or that Google image is satellite view and, and zoom out a bit. There's a lot going on here. It's kind of hard to find a common thread. I mean, we've got Paul leaving and strange haircuts and vows. We've got travels and stopovers and side characters who become main characters. We've got new ones coming in and seemingly random trips to Jerusalem and Antioch and more travels again. And how do you take anything from this other than, well, that happened? You know? And so the other part of it is we don't even get a whole lot of detail here, right? It's just this, then this, then this. And it's like trying to figure out what a puzzle is supposed to look like with only a third of the pieces and no picture. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but two people can be in the exact same situation, witness the exact same events, and have two entirely different takes on what happened, right? And today's passage very well could be like this. I have no idea what Pastor Steve or Pastor Travis or Pastor Tim are preaching today about this passage. I, I didn't ask on purpose. And it could be that their take is quite different than what we're going to talk about today. That, that is okay. Because it's a narrative passage. It's not Paul saying, do this, don't do this. And that's fine. The trick of dealing with a passage like this, whether it's somebody like me up here preaching or you reading the Bible on your own or in a small group, is to make sure that we're looking at the passage intently, that we're seeing what's actually there, not what we want to be there, and that we're always interpreting the narrative scripture through the lens of other scripture. It's got to be consistent with other scripture. And specifically, those more intentionally instructive portions of scripture. Because if we don't do it that way, if we just say, well, here's what I think, without thinking about those other parts of Scripture, well, we get ourselves into trouble. We end up justifying ourselves when we want to do something. Or we avoid things that we know we're supposed to do because we don't want to hear about them. And so we always have to make sure that as we're looking at a narrative portion of Scripture, we're always looking beyond that. It's one of the things that you'll have noticed that I've done. When I come to a specific city in Acts, I tend to say, okay, what did Paul have to say to this church, if we have a record of it, so I can see, okay, what are the kinds of things, what are the kinds of issues 
that we're dealing with. And so as we look at today's passages, what I passage and what I'm calling endings, interludes, beginnings, and handoffs, I want you to realize that I'm trying to pull these threads together, but it is by no means the only thing that can be gained from this, or even necessarily all of the things that Dr. Luke, as he's writing, was thinking about. His job was to create a narrative to say, this happened, this is real, this is true. It's our job today to say, okay, what do we do with that? How do we live through that? So let's start with endings. When we left Paul last week, he's in Corinth, and he's just escaped, potentially, another hasty exit from town. In this case, the proconsul, Gallio, who is not Paul's friend, actually intervenes so he doesn't have to leave. And today we learn in verse 18 that Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that. How long? We don't know. Why was it time to leave? We don't know. What was the situation like? We don't know. And it drives me crazy. I want details. I want to know the full story because I want to figure out, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? And what should I do with this? And because I'm curious and I don't like not knowing. I drive my wife crazy. I don't like surprise parties. I want the details. I want to know what's happening. I was the one with all of our kids who said, I need to know, boy, girl, that kind of stuff because I didn't want to not know. And so this kind of passage is hard for me. And I asked myself, okay, what do we learn from the endings? And I do think there are a few things that we can take from this, even if we don't have all the details. And the first is that endings are inevitable. It's going to happen, right? Sooner or later, our time at something or with someone will end. I saw this up close and personal this week. Look, I've been incredibly blessed. I, I read the eulogy at the, the funeral mass for my grandfather. He had nine grandchildren, 16 great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild. And that's unbelievably rare. My kids are all teenagers, and they all have known well their great-grandfather. And that doesn't happen very often. It's incredibly rare. But endings still come. Death still comes. It's inevitable. And we see it in small ways too. Jobs or moves as Dan talked about or boyfriends or girlfriends that come and go. Places that we remember from where we are, when we were young that are completely different today. TV shows and bands and Life moves on, and endings are inevitable. We don't like it always, but it's true. And the question is, how are we going to face them? Paul approached the time when it was time to end in Corinth, and he moved on at the right time. We might not always know how or why, but they're there. 
Second, endings should always be intentional if possible. Look, Paul didn't end his stay at Philippi or Thessalonica or even Berea in the way that he would have wanted to leave, right? He's hightailing it out of town in the middle of the night. And unless you're a Navy SEAL, chances are you really don't want to sneak out of town in the middle of the night. That's usually the sign that something has gone wrong, not something has gone right. But Corinth is different. See, Paul is confronted with the dust-up, with the, the legal issues, and there is a public beating, and the authorities don't care, and he still stays on for some time. And so we know this is intentional because of that, and we also can see a few other things that are going to come up. In verse 18, Luke says that Paul says goodbye to the believers. Well, that's not exactly a sneak-out-of-town kind of a moment. He's intentional about it. We also realize that he had the time to do it, right? He also brings Aquila and Priscilla with him. And on the surface, that seems like a detail, right? But think about this. They are the people that have been his companions for at least 18 months there. He's lived with them and worked with them. They're the ones that helped him out when he got to town. Is this a security blanket, Paul? I need to have a job at the next stop, so come with me? I don't think so. The rest of the episode that we've read, and we're going to talk about more in a minute, shows us that that's not really what's going on here. But we could also ask from the flip side, why them? I mean, Aquila and Priscilla are some of the best leaders that Corinth has. When you think about verses 24 to 28 and the instruction of Apollos, these are not lightweights. They know their stuff. But when we think about it a little bit more, that tells us something too, even though we don't have all kinds of details. Paul believed that the church in Corinth was sufficiently established so that he could leave, but so could Aquila and Priscilla. He thought that was what was going on. He knew that he was leaving the church in good enough shape that they could and would continue after he was gone. He didn't leave Corinth when he felt like it. We saw that last week. But when they were ready. Look, they're not perfect. Because we've read First and Second Corinthians, and we know that they're messed up, just like the rest of us. But they were sufficiently established that he could keep going. But there's a, there's a third part of this endings, and I'm sure that you're kind of wondering about the weird haircut statement in there. What's going on with Paul giving himself a haircut? He had taken a vow. And in this vow, we see that endings should mark God's faithfulness. See, we don't have all the details. We don't know what the vow was or why or when exactly. But we have some pretty good guesses. Scholars, many scholars, think that this was a Nazarite vow, like in the Old Testament. Grow your hair long. And there's certain things you can't do and certain things you can do. 
The, the tricky part is that, generally speaking, they didn't happen outside of Palestine. Or when they did, there were extra things they had to do. And again, we don't need, know all the details, but here's what I think is going on here. Could be wrong. But I think. Paul was a Pharisee. And many scholars will tell you that he really never stopped being a Pharisee, which sounds weird to us, I know. But think about this. He debates just like the Pharisees debate. Does the same thing. He reasons like them. He seems to maintain basically all of the Jewish customs, even though he tells the people who get converted, you don't have to do so. Right? So it's not about whether or not you have to do this, but this is who he is. And if you think about this, culturally, eth ethnically, religiously, that's who he is. These are the things that formed him. Look, my wife is Canadian, right? She's lived here in the United States, except for a few years, since the 90s, college. She doesn't say A at the end of sentences as much as she used to. If you get her a little bit excited, you still hear about, not about. Okay? She has been somewhere. She hasn't been somewhere. Mom is mom. Okay? They seem like silly little things, but they're part of who she is. They have formed her. And chances are, you and I have the same kinds of things. We are decorated for Christmas. We've started Advent. Chances are, you have traditions in your house, in and around Christmas, that come back to when you were a kid. Now, maybe you've changed them a little bit along the way. But there are still those things that grab you, that pull you back. And if you're younger now, the chances are that when you get older, some of those things from now, when you are young, you will bring into your life, tweak them a bit, but they're going to maintain and they're going to be there. And I think that's what's going on with Paul here. Right? So this vow connects him to who he is as a Jew, as a Pharisee. And those, trans, those traditions are part of who he is, but they also allow him to reach out to his people. Right? Because where does Paul go every time he goes into a new Greek town? He goes to the synagogue first. He goes to his people. He never stops going to his people. And when we talked about Paul's calling last week, we saw that Ananias tells that he's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles, but also to his own people. And that's part of what's going on here too. And a vow like this would be recognized by the Jewish people as being Jewish. As Paul keeping a connection with his people and saying, this story, this Messiah I am telling you about, that's our story. That's our Messiah. And Paul's doing this. But I think there's also more. What is this vow about? 
Again, we're not entirely certain, but here's what I think is going on here. Remember, Paul was ready to pack it up in Corinth. He is at his lowest point, and God comes to him in a vision and says, No, stay. I have many people in this city. And I think that's when the vow happened. I think Paul got up in the morning and said, Okay, God wants me here. I'm taking a vow. I'm not cutting my hair until it is time to leave. And when he gets to the town of Sincre, it's the eastern port for Corinth, right? He's leaving. The time is up. And what does he do? He cuts off his hair because the vow is completed and he is remembering that God has been faithful throughout this entire time. It hasn't been easy. It didn't look the way that he wanted. He didn't always want to be there, but God has been faithful. And when we leave a place, when we leave a situation, it's important for us to remember God's faithfulness during that time with that person. We need to remember what has gone on. and We definitely need to remember what God has done. And one of the reasons that I love those all-in stories that we watch is because they remind us of God's faithfulness and they help us to look ahead to what's next. Which leads us to the interlude. The thing about endings is that they rarely just resolve themselves into something new. It's rarely, boom, done, next thing starts. Right? Usually, there's an interlude. The time in between times. One thing is done, but the next hasn't quite yet started. And we see it in jobs and relationships and transitions from one stage of life to another. Elementary school to middle school. Middle school to high school. High school to college. And college to the working world. And there's usually transition points, at least a summer, in between those things, right? And there's other ones. Single to dating, to single again, to dating, to engaged, to married. Married to parents, parents to grandparents. And along the way, there are moments that don't quite fit, that aren't quite defined as stages. You aren't one thing, but you're not quite the next either. And that's what happens as we follow Paul this morning. He goes... Ephesus. It's a stop along the way. It's not where he's heading. And he drops off Aquila and Priscilla. I'm going to call them A and P. He stays for a short time. He even ministers there. But that's not his destination. It's not the next thing. And even where Paul goes next isn't really the next thing. Jerusalem and Antioch. They're part of the interlude. So what do we take from what we see in Paul's life and the interludes in those in-between times in our own life? I think that it's probably best for us to see the interlude as the setup time for what's next. It's still got important work to do, but we could very easily drift or get distracted during this time. We could possibly become depressed or otherwise captured by emotion. So... I've got an acronym for you about interludes. It's called FAST, because we want to make our interludes, our transitions, fast, right? We don't want them to linger. So first, focus. 
we're told that Paul sails for Syria. But just like our creek, he takes a long way to get there. Goes by way of Ephesus and Caesarea and Jerusalem. And how's that focus? I think we see Paul's focus in a couple of ways here. First, Luke tells us from the outset where Paul is headed. The end is in mind. He didn't have to get there immediately. Generally, that isn't the way interludes work. Second, Paul does good work in Ephesus. He goes to the synagogue just like he normally does. And he does good work. Such good work that the people there want him to stay. Wow. He's been kicked out of town after town. And these people want him to stay. I don't know about you, but I would say, okay, somebody finally wants me here. But Paul says, no, I can't. I mean, verse 21 shows us that he wants to. I'll come back if God wills. But his focus is on something else. It's the interlude. There's some manuscripts that indicate Paul told the people in Ephesus he had to go to a festival in Jerusalem. And that could have to do with that vow we talked about because the Nazarite vow would have meant that his hair would have supposed to have been burned at the temple at the end of that. And so it could be that that's what's going on. But in any case, Paul keeps his focus and doesn't just stay in a place that would have been comfortable and even fulfilling for him to do. The interlude was just an interlude. Next, not the next thing. Second, an interlude requires accountability. Where does Paul end up? Jerusalem, then Antioch. These are the places, the people that Paul is accountable to. Jerusalem is the mother church. Hesitate to use that term because it's got a lot of baggage, but that's really what is going on in chapter 15 of Acts, when there's controversy in Antioch of Syria, Paul and Barnabas are sent to Jerusalem to resolve it. We see the first church council in Acts 15, and it is the church in Jerusalem where it happens. The apostles still mattered. They were, at least in some sense, still the keepers of Jesus' teaching and mission, and Paul is responsible to them. What they have to say matters even as important as Paul is, as this kind of roving missionary, even though he's got authority, he still is accountable. But he's also not just accountable to the church in Jerusalem, he's accountable to the church in Antioch. Why? Because they are the church that sent him. Regardless of of what we think about ourselves as sort of independent, when we look at Paul's life, in chapter 14, the first missionary journey ends and he goes back to Antioch. This is the church that sent him. And here in 1822, at the end of the second missionary journey, he does it again. He's accountable. And when we are in an interlude period, we still need to be accountable. It's not always easy. We move and we try to find a new church, and it's hard. But accountability is necessary, especially in the interlude, because without it, that next thing, the beginning, 
of what God has for us next is very easily missed. So, focus accountability, S. Set up what's next. I know it sounds a little bit weird. I don't have a single uh, word for it, but look what Paul did. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. And it sounds like a side note, but as we will learn next week, it's not. It's strategic. Because Ephesus is where Paul's going to end up at the end of his third missionary journey. He sets himself up for success by leaving two trusted people there. But that's not all that he does. Part of accountability is getting ourselves right. Paul didn't just check into Jerusalem and Antioch and leave. He spent time there. Right? I dare say he recharged his batteries. He was spiritually nourished. And we can't be ready for the next thing that God has for us if we don't spend time with him and his people, if we don't actively do this. We can walk... If you try to walk into a new relationship when an old one has just ended and ended badly, guess what? You're going to bring baggage into it. You start a new job and you bring the baggage from the old job. Is it going to go well? No. Sometimes we need time and space and we need to get our heads right. And that's what Paul is doing here. Setting up ourselves for success requires getting ready for the next thing. And, and Jesus in Luke 24 tells us to count the cost of being a disciple, to think things through. And the example he uses is building a tower. He says, look, if you're going to build a tower, you don't just start without a plan. You don't start without counting the cost to figure out, can I afford to do this? Do I have what it takes? And I think that's what Paul's doing here. He goes to the people he's accountable to, and he listens, and he recharges, and he no doubt gets advice and help along the way. And finally, T, he takes the next step. Here's the danger of the interlude. You can get stuck in the in-between. You don't want to go back to what was before, but you're really not sure that you want to go on either. You get comfortable in the in-between. But Paul, at every step in the interlude, every stage of the interlude, takes the next step. He leaves, he goes from Corinth to Ephesus. He ministers for a short time in the layover, but maintains his focus. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. He moves on. He goes to Jerusalem. And he takes the next step to Antioch. And then he waits and he recharges and he takes the next step. And that's the beginning. New ventures, new relationships, new situations are often filled with uncertainty. You don't know what to expect. It's uncharted territory. Sometimes... Something new is a leap unto the unknown. But if we look at what Paul does here in verse 23, we realize that sometimes a new beginning does not equal new in the way that we think about it. Paul, in verse 23, we are told, travels from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, 
strengthening all the disciples there. Now, that ought to be at least a little bit familiar. Basically, he went back to all the places he had been in the first missionary journey in the beginning of the second. And I think we can learn a few things from Paul's beginning in the third missionary journey. In the world of product development, there is something called iteration. It basically means variation on a theme. Small improvements or minor changes to get something right or better. Thomas Edison is famous for trying lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of different things before he got the right filament for the light bulb. Tried some crazy things along the way. And today, if you think about what he did not that very long ago in history, we now have lots and lots of variations on what he did. Mercury vapor lights and fluorescent lights and neon and now LEDs. None of which work the way that Edison did, but they all do the same thing, just in different ways. And in Paul's case, he goes back to the churches he started and helped to start. And sometimes starting something new means going back to where we've been. That doesn't always sound like fun. It's not the thrill of the unknown, but sometimes starting something new does include doubling back just like that creek. But it also means that we have to bring who we are and what we know with. Paul's new venture not only goes where he's been before, it looks an awful lot like what he's done before. He visits. He encourages. But at the same time, we're not told anything about Paul going to the synagogues this time. Why? He goes to the disciples. He goes to the churches, the places that he's helped establish. Again, it's iteration. It's not identical action. But the things that make Paul Paul, the things that characterize his ministry, these are the things that he brings from the past into the new beginning. God uses who we are. And whenever we start something new, we're always going to bring ourselves. It's the one thing we can't help but bring. The good parts and the bad parts. And Paul uses who he is and what he knows when he starts over. All of the things that he's gone through, all of the people that he's met and the obstacles he faced, they come with him in some form. The triumphs, the defeats, the successes and failures. And what does he do? He visits. He is present with the disciples, the believers, the church. He encourages. He builds them up. It doesn't mean everything's rosy. Read any one of Paul's letters to any one of these churches and you will know that these churches are filled with messed up people who keep doing messed up things, just like us. There is no golden era or perfect state of the church just didn't exist. Paul is consistently telling the churches in his letters to shape up, but he is doing it for a very specific reason, to encourage them, to strengthen them in the faith, to keep their eyes on and hearts, their minds, their actions on what really matters. And we see this when he when we look at verses 24 to 28. 
Because this is where we see the handoff. Here at Village, we talk about discovering, developing, and deploying disciples. And most of Acts is about the church's mission to discover new disciples throughout the Roman Empire. That's what it's about. It's the the march of the church. But, as we wrap up today, I want to take a few minutes to talk about the develop and deploy part. Sometimes it can seem like Acts, the entire book, is the Peter and Paul show. It's about the big guys, right? They're very spiritual, they're very effective, they can go through things that the rest of us can't go through, they further the unstoppable stoppable work of the kingdom of God, and it's all about these larger-than-life guys. The preachers and the leaders and the wow guys. And let's be honest, God does use people like that, but not always. Sometimes the biggest guys start believing their own press clippings and they fall pretty hard and pretty far. And sometimes the most gifted ones are the ones that are also the most flawed. I had this conversation with my son earlier this week about arguably one of the greatest musicians of the last half century or better who's got a big movie about him right now, Freddie Mercury. An amazing musician. Could do things that the rest of us couldn't only dream of. I used to buy music for a living. And one of my rules was, when I was evaluating anything, you are not Freddie Mercury. Do not try to sing a Freddie Mercury song. Because you can't. I've only... in. In all of the time I was doing it, I found one guy who could. And they actually used him for vocals in the movie. <laughs> okay? Sometimes you get guys like that, but Freddie Mercury fell so far because he started believing in his own press and he decided that he was going to go with what he felt and what he wanted. And he left everything that mattered behind and destroyed himself. And we're going to see a really gifted person at the end of the passage, but God uses all kinds. And sometimes we're tempted to think that whatever is going to happen requires one of those guys. Or sometimes we're tempted to think that it's all up to us. It depends on us. And it's not true. In 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds the Corinthian believers that God uses the foolish things to instruct or confound or shame the wise. Look, Paul isn't needed to get the the job done that God wants. He's chosen to do it. So, the development part. Paul met Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. They were already believers. They spent 18 months with Paul. And we don't know a whole lot about them. We do know that Paul invested in them. He trusted them. He spent time with them. He developed them and deployed them. And think about this. Paul not only brings them with, as he wrapped up his second journey, 
He left them on their own in a town that he didn't actually plant a church in. That is a testimony of trust to their development. Development for them meant spending time with Paul. It meant observing Paul. I think Paul, essentially what we would call, mentored them. But we have to remember it wasn't about Paul. It was about Jesus. Every time Paul goes to a new city, he goes to a synagogue. And what does he say? He teaches them that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the heart of the development of Aquila and Priscilla and of all of us. And if we look at 1 Corinthians 15, just for a moment, verses 1 to 11, we see the kernel of what Paul is all about. Paul reminds the Corinthian church of the heart of their faith. And this is what he says. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which I received and on which you have taken your stand, which I have received. We saw that earlier in another passage in Corinthians. By this gospel, you have been saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And now from this point on, through verse uh, 8. This is what is widely known as one of, if not the oldest creed in the church, possibly a hymn. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. And that is the heart of what our faith is about, of the development about. And I love the passage that we are in today when we think about Paul and that that 1 Corinthians passage. If we look at at back in Acts 18 at verse 25, we get to see, or 24 and 25, we get to see sort of a double development and a double deployment. In verse 24, we meet Apollos. And as the kids probably don't say anymore, he's got it going on. He's got it all going on. He is smart. Even his name is cool. He's named after the Greek sun god. He's from the center of learning and culture. Alexandria, Egypt, the second largest city in the empire. This is the place where the famous library happened. This is the place where the Jews translated the Septuagint. Legend says 70 men in 70 days. Didn't happen that way, but that's what the legends say. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And Apollos in verse 25 is clearly a believer. He knows about Jesus and he teaches about him accurately. He's teaching at the synagogue in Ephesus. 
And he is one of the good ones. But he only knows the baptism of John. And it seems so odd. How does somebody who is so knowledgeable, who's clearly a believer, used by God, have something so basic that he's missing? Doesn't make sense, but there it is. He needs to be developed. Even someone ministering powerfully needs to be developed. And you know who God uses to do it? Not Paul, not the other apostles. Two tent makers, business people that aren't even from town, not full-time leaders, and they train the trainer. And I think that's crucial. We can't look down at others because of who they are, where they come from, or what their knowledge base is, because you never know when they're going to develop you. Aquila and Priscilla instruct Apollos. Notice how they do it. Tactfully. Quietly. They don't call him out publicly and say, listen, bozo. How do you not know about the baptism of John? They bring him into their home. They explain. They help him along. That's what they do. And then, he in turn develops others. And it's absolutely imperative that we do what we can to learn from others, and to help others grow in turn. It doesn't matter who we are, how young, how old. This is an ongoing, constant process. And one could argue that it's also seen in Paul's life, in this passage, from when he goes back to Jerusalem and Antioch. Developing as a disciple of Christ never stops. But along the way, we also have to be deployed. And just like with the interludes, next step have to be taken. It would be easy to say, oh, I'm not good enough. I need to know more and keep developing and keep developing and never be deployed. But Aquila and Priscilla start a new work in Ephesus. They're deployed for ministry by Paul. He's had to hand over the keys, so to speak. And letting go can be a hard thing to do, whether it's your teenager in a driver's license or sending a kid off to college or the decisions in life that we have to make, or turning over a project to someone else to execute, or stepping up uh, on our own to do something new, Paul deploys Aquila and Priscilla. They're human, so we know they're not perfect. They weren't Paul, so we know they're not going to do things exactly like he did, even though they're trained by him. They themselves develop and then deploy Apollos. Look at verses 27 to 28 as we close. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the believers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was of great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. It's not just Aquila and Priscilla, it's the whole church at Ephesus. They not only developed him, they encouraged him. They sent him out to Achaia. You know where that is? 
That's Corinth. They sent him back to Corinth. And they gave him endorsement letters. And the church decided, you need to go and help others. And there's those beginnings and endings and interludes, even in the lives of Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos here. The ebbs and flows and doubling back just like that creek. Apollos goes back to where Paul and Aquila and Priscilla had been. And because he was willing and because he had been developed, he was of great help to those who by grace had believed. What was Apollos' message in ministry? To the Jews, to the ones that almost had it right? He looked at the scriptures and showed them that Jesus was the Messiah, 1 Corinthians 15. What is this all about? And just like Paul, this is where we start and it's where we end, with Jesus. And all the endings and the interludes and all of the beginnings and the handoffs don't matter if Jesus isn't central. And it's Jesus who makes all the difference. And so, as we sort of finish in Ephesus and get ready for Ephesus, I think it would be appropriate to close with just a glimpse from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. A glimpse that reminds us who Jesus is and what he's done for us and what he requires of us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. And this is what Paul says. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Amen.